Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine, and a very warm welcome to the Film Stories podcast. You join us just as interviews are ongoing for a replacement host for me for this podcast. And let's listen in on how they're getting on. Uh, under the contract, management can only fire a driver on very specific charges. So, you ever show up late? No. Do you have any moving violations? No. Do you drink on the job? No. you ever hit anybody? On a job? Yeah. I don't think so. All right, then. We don't have nothing to worry about. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that had stories. That the story just sucks a man. This is just the beginning. Stories. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello, and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, that's absolutely everything you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, well, the title gives it away, really. I'm here to talk of the stories of film, and I tend to talk about development stories, production stories, marketing stories, release stories, all those bits and bobs, those factors that go to make the films that we know and love just that, the films that we know and sometimes love. The movies I tend to choose this podcast lean more towards the mainstream than anything. They're films I'm interested in or invested in to some degree. I try not to do snark. I try not to punch down. I think it's really hard to make a film and I really just want to celebrate the people who manage it and the fact that films exist. Without further ado or preamble, let me crack on then with the first of the two films in this episode of Film Stories. Only going back a few years to a Martin Scorsese movie that took a long time to come together. Let me play you a clip and I'll come to the story the other side of this. Frank, I want you to meet my cousin, Russell Buffalino. Better watch, there's a lot of tough guys around here. Did he tell you? You're not afraid of tough guys, are you? I didn't think so. I was one of a thousand working stiffs until I wasn't no more. You got a good friend here. You don't know how good a friend you got. Russell, he took a shine to me right away. After a while, he started giving me little things to do. I know you read a lot of things about me. I just want to say I'm sorry. I know I wasn't a good dad. I know that. I know that. I was just trying to protect all of you. From what? You didn't see what I see, what I've been through. A friend of ours is having a little trouble. A friend at the top. Hiya, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Glad to meet you. Big business and the government is on the attack. Do you want to be a part of this fight? A part of this history? That then was a clip from 2019's The Irishman, directed by Martin Scorsese from a screenplay by Stephen Zalian based on the book I, he- I Heard You Paint Houses by Charles Brandt. Starring Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, Al Pacino, Harvey Keitel, Anna Paquin, Ray Romano, Stephen Graham, Bobby Cannavale and basically loads and loads and loads of people. 
And it dates back really, well, conversations on this date back to the 1990s, that following their latest collaboration at that point on 1995's Casino, it was assumed that director Martin Scorsese and actor Robert De Niro would be back together working on a new film soon enough. It was a shorthand for working collaboration. Every director and actor was looking for a Scorsese-De Niro style relationship, but several projects came and went without the pair working together for a good couple of decades, which wasn't actually the plan. It's just the two pro the two never really crossed over. Now, there were a couple that were bubbling up, but one name that kept coming around was The Irishman. And as Martin Scorsese would eventually explain to The Guardian, Bob and I had tried for many years to come up with a project. And he said this one actually started about 35 years ago with the idea of the remake of The Bad and the Beautiful and its sequel, Two Weeks in Another Town. So different source, but they exhausted that particular approach and didn't find a film there. And eventually it was De Niro who came across Charles Brandt's story, I Heard You Paint Houses, and passed it on to Scorsese and said there's an amazing part for Joe Pesci in there if he wants to do it. There's one for Al Pacino and Pacino and De Niro had worked together once or twice before. Scorsese hadn't. Um, and he said, we just knew that we're right for it. And then we looked at each other and realised we were meant for this somehow. It's not necessarily a culmination, but a sense of contemplation of where we are near the end of our lives. And so the idea of De Niro and Scorsese working together got moving properly when Charles Brandt's book came out. And that was what, 2004-ish, it finally it, it was finally published. And Brandt had uh, interviewed someone who was reportedly close to the mysterious death of Union figure Jimmy Hoffa, uh, a famous figure in American history, perhaps less known here in the UK, although Danny DeVito and Jack Nicholson starred in a Hoffa biopic in the 1990s, which is worth seeking out. So Brandt had conducted interviews and had got new insight into a, a story of, of just how and why Jimmy Hoffa disappeared and his ultimate fate. But at the time De Niro was looking at a different role that Don Winslow's book The Winter of Frankie Machine had bubbled up that Paramount Pictures had taken an option on it and the plan was that De Niro would star in that and Scorsese would direct it. But then the book I Heard You Paint Houses entered the equation and their heads were turned that De Niro was in the midst of researching the Winter of Frankie Machine. He found this other story. He passed that on to Scorsese and the pair quickly jumped from one to the other. And so in 2007, a formal option was taken on the book. But 2007 was a period where Hollywood was in something of a changing time that this was the era where if you wanted to make a film of a certain budget, you needed to send it out with a PG-13 rating in US cinemas, 12A in the UK, because otherwise, conventional wisdom went, you had no chance of making your money back. Now, for a while, Hollywood had basically been inoculated against this by the rise of DVD revenues, but they were peaking in the middle of the, of the noughties and were about to start a downward spiral that would rob Hollywood of a very valuable cash cow and one that had allowed it to take risks on edgier material. And so with the DVD boom in reverse and the cost of what became The Irishman likely to soar, there were problems here because the sheer ambition and, and scope of the story required a, a big cast. It required characters that would go from their 20s to their 50s and in the end even beyond that, 
on screen in front of our eyes. Now, that was either going to require a ton of technology or a ton of makeup or both, but it was going to be a logistical challenge and a half. But still, the, the flame of it just kept lightly burning. It never extinguished, but also the project never really caught fire. That Lots of people flirted with it, but the price of it and the fact that it didn't really look like a surefire box office winner was enough to dissuade people from putting their pounds into it. Still, by December 2008, it did have one of its runs at, at heading to cinemas because it was widely reported at that point that Robert De Niro in December 2008 was going to be playing Frank the Irishman Sheeran. Stephen Zalian, an Oscar winner for adapting Schindler's List, had adapted Charles Brandt's book and turned it into a screenplay. Scorsese was in the midst of finishing up uh, the film Shutter Island with his, current, his then muse, well, his current muse as well, Leonardo DiCaprio. And the project was very much alive. Well, at least that's what you thought, because then there was another gap of about 12, 18 months before we really heard anything else tangible about it. But by the end of 2010, The Irishman was definitely moving forward again. Now a 2011 shoot was being planned. Paramount Pictures was in there. Al Pacino, Joe Pesci and Harvey Keitel were all mooted to join the ensemble, although they hadn't signed on the dotted line at this stage. And then it disappeared again. And so what needed to happen was investment needed to be attracted to the project. But Paramount hadn't let the film go and there was still interest in and around it. However, they needed other people to put their money where, where everyone else's mouth was, really. That Paramount had been a pioneer in co-funding big studio movies in the 1990s. That had been the model it had taken through in the, in the years, the decades that followed. And so in an attempt to attract serious investment to the film, in January 2013, there was an infamous, uh, well, more an, a famous, but let's go with infamous, script reading. Now, this took place at Robert De Niro's Tribeca Film Centre in New York, and Paramount representatives were there. Robert De Niro was there. Al Pacino was there. Joe Pesci was on hand. Martin Scorsese brought them together, and they read through the script that Stephen Zalian had penned, and footage of this has, has come to light since. But this was always something of a North Star for the project, that investors were there with a view of picking up the rights, and this was a concerted effort to get it off the ground. We will sit in front of you. We will read the whole thing we will show you the weight of the people involved and then you know get your checkbook out but it didn't yet trigger there was still these challenges there was still this talk how can you get these actors in front of you to de-age on screen and as every year went by without them making the film that challenge was exponentially just expanding somewhat and so from time to time Pacino would call De Niro to say is this still happening he said yeah yeah it's still happening but it was going to take a lot more time to do so uh, in 2013, I mean, the questions kept coming. In 2013, Robert De Niro was uh, promoting the comedy The Family and he was asked at that point, uh, are you going to be working with Scorsese again? He said, yeah, we're going to be working together on a new gangster film. He didn't explicitly say what that gangster film was, but it was a fair bet it was going to be The Irishman. This is a film that by now had just become a regular shorthand question to ask Scorsese, to ask De Niro every time they had a new project and a press tour come round. But Scorsese's slate was busy as well. It's worth noting that after his Oscar win for The Departed, he was making films like Hugo. He, went, he did uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, of course. He planned to make Silence. That was very high up his list of projects to do. And he wanted to do Silence before he did The Irishman. But The Irishman was in the queue. And finally, some more investments started to come towards the movie. 
And so 2016, this is where the cash started to suddenly flow. The STX, for instance, picked up the rights to the film outside of America for a princely $50 million. That there was a Mexican company, Fabricio de Cini, had offered to put in $100 million into the film. More financiers were circling as well. I am global. It wanted to pick up some of the rights. There were there were still Hollywood studios milling around this as well. But there were concerns. I mean, Zalian's script, I've not mentioned this yet, was long. There was no way this was going to be a short movie. We were going to talk at least three hours for this one. And three-hour movies tend to be box office poison. That was the, some very notable exceptions, but that was still more the rule than the exception. And so... At this point in 2016, it was looking like this very risky R-rated gangster film was going to cost $125 million at that stage. And so R-rated films costing $125 million, they were not breaking through in great numbers at all. And there was a genuine concern, could this ever make its money back? Now, in the midst of all of this, in 2013, a couple of years before, Scorsese had scored a huge hit with The Wolf of Wall Street. That was R-rated. That was three hours long. And that had given a fresh burst of momentum to this project because Scorsese had proven we can do this. We can deliver this. It can still make a profit. It can clearly get Oscar attention, which it was widely expected. However, The Irishman turned out it would get Oscar attention. But still, who actually wanted to pay for it? Well, the answer to that in the end was not Paramount Pictures because Paramount had partnered with Scorsese on the film Silence, which came out the end of 2016. And the international rights were held elsewhere. But when Silence failed to perform at the box office, Paramount, well, it got the wobbles. And appreciating few people would look at the synopsis and length of silence and suggest it was going to make an absolute fortune. The fact that it had cost $46 million to make, which is quite slim by the standards of what Scorsese put on screen, but was shown little signs of making that back at a point where Paramount's fortunes were hardly stellar at that stage. Well, the studio had second thoughts that management was changing. And was this really the kind of project it wanted to make? And so Paramount put out the feelers to Netflix that at this stage, Netflix had turned Hollywood's head a few years previously by signing up Adam Sandler, who was then a, still a box office draw, to a very, very expensive, effectively golden handcuffs deal that would see him well, pretty much exclusively making movies for Netflix. And Netflix's investment was growing. That appreciating the streaming giant was was backed up by debt, it was nonetheless on a massive spending spree to try and get its foothold firmly in the movie business. And already in television, it had earned a reputation for outspending everybody else to get a project. And here it was entering the movie business and doing the same. Was it overpaying for projects? Well, that's for other people to judge, really. But it certainly wasn't shy of spending a few quid. And so with Paramount backing out of The Irishman, it looked just for a minute that the project was gone, that its moment had disappeared. And then Netflix came along. Netflix didn't just pick the project up. It agreed to pay the whole bill. There was no co-financing deal that needed to be done. Netflix would fund the lot at last. It didn't have the same expectations of box office returns as a traditional Hollywood studio. And also it would give Scorsese creative control. 
this meant, I mean, the announcement of the deal in February 2017 that came through, it sent ripples through Hollywood because this wasn't Netflix now trying to get an Adam Sandler movie and draw um, an audience that way. This was a great big grenade into the Oscar race, into prestige Hollywood, into the kind of film that studios should be making but couldn't make. And so with the money secured, Scorsese could now press forward with The Irishman as his next project. But at the point he was doing that, already work had been going on with Industrial Light and Magic, the special effects geniuses, to had been doing a, a VFX test to see if it was possible to digitally de-age an actor convincingly. And it had done a special test with Robert De Niro. And as the VFX supervisor on the film, Pablo Hellman, and what a job he had on his hands, well, he explained to Deadline, he said, scientifically, the first test gave us the certainty that we could pull geometry from light and textures. He said that was a kind of a proof of concept. So I had to convince a lot of people around me to come up with a production model that was fiscally responsible that we could actually complete a movie with. Because what Hellman had, di had discovered was, yes, it was possible to digitally de-age an actor, but also it was quite an intensive process originally it was going to cost a lot of money and the Irishman was going to need a lot of that work even though Netflix was paying and money was slightly no object it was still a bit of an object and so that development work was ongoing as well now a couple of the core performers in the Irishman cast of course were with this all along specifically Robert De Niro and Al Pacino were all but committed to the project Turned out Joe Pesci wasn't. That Pesci, who'd won an Oscar for Goodfellas and was equally memorable in a supporting role in Casino, well, he'd not been acting for a long time. And he was taking some persuading to come out of retirement to officially sign on the dotted line and actually do the movie. The announcement that he was willing to do so finally came in July 2017. And according to Deadline, by this stage, he turned the film down some 50 times before finally saying yes to it. It was, as it happened, Robert De Niro, who was pivotal to that, that he had a conversation with Pesci and he just suggested to him, this would be the last time we'll all be able to do something like this again. It was the kind of chance they couldn't turn down. And Pesci eventually was convinced to join up. Now, to go through the hugely extensive cast for The Irishman would take a long time, but just that it's worth noting that across the next couple of months in 2017, it's, it was crewing up that Stephen Graham and Jack Houston, for instance, they joined the film in September. Gary Basaraba and Anna Paquin, they were on board in October and the casting came for a little while, even as filming had got underway. Now, one person who wasn't in the ensemble was Mickey Rourke. And in fact, he would give an interview in September 2019, just on the eve of the film's release, to an Italian television uh, programme called Live Non Ele Derso, where he said he could have been considered for The Irishman, he alleged, had Robert De Niro not refused the collaboration. And as Mickey Rourke said, Marty Scorsese wanted to meet me for a movie with Al Pacino, Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro. The casting person told my manager that Robert De Niro said he would refuse to work with me in a movie. They'd worked together, of course, on Angel Heart many years beforehand. That aside, though, finally, The Irishman could start filming in New York City on September the 18th, 2017. It would be a very long, very uh, intense technically shoot, as well as one that spanned many, many, many months. I mean, the physical shoot of this, just to give some idea of it, would run for over three months. It would have 6,000 extras at one stage. There are 200 odd characters in the story, nearly 300 locations. And it had taken uh, over 10 years to get to the point where Scorsese could call action for the first time. 
But he also had lead actors, specifically De Niro, Pacino and Joe Pesci, who were who were in their 70s at the time of filming. And they had to convincingly portray for all the digital uh, trickery around them people in their 30s and 40s. So they had posture coaches brought onto the set to teach them how to walk young, how to just adopt a gait that made them look many decades younger on screen than they would than they would be in real life. I would suggest that there are one or two moments in the early parts of the film where that's not very convincing at all, but still there's little doubt at all that The Irishman is a technological masterclass in the midst of it all. And there's Pablo Hellman and his work uh, at the heart of it. Because Hellman by this stage had had a couple of years to get this system in place that could de-age convincingly a bunch of old men for the purposes of the film. But Scorsese was also adamant that whatever ILM came up with to do that filming could not get in the way of the shoot itself. There was no question at all you were going to have people dressed up in green outfits with ping pong balls all over them as the cliche of visual effects work. And so what ILM came up with in the end, as Hellman would explain to Deadline, was something called the three-headed beast. And this was a special rig compri comprised of, I'm going to quote, a one, con one conventional digital camera and two infrared cameras, which would capture facial performance without the visual interference of shadows. And infrared cameras had never been used in this way before. Now, what this in turn meant was a massive amount of data from the camera system was acquired. And so Hellman and his team then put this through a new piece of software called Flux, which also then integrated artificial intelligence technologies to, quote, further elevate the de-aging work. There were no ping pong balls. There were no spots. There was no CG baggage per se on set. And so the actors could concentrate on, on getting their performance, uh, their performances right. And Scorsese could get on with making his film. But all the time, massive amounts of data were being were being was being captured that would need to be processed and worked on through an extensive post-production period of the movie. Now, Scorsese did have a safety net with the Netflix investment on this, and he would admit that he was able to experiment more with the style of this, with the narrative style, the visual style, the length of the film. He also knew that because this was a film that was going through different eras and different decades, he could shoot each different era, each decade in a slightly different way with slightly different colour scheme, which he would do. Um, the Safdie brothers, it's worth noting, would come on set and spend time watching Scorsese film The Irishman as they were putting together the film Uncut Gems, which would land roughly around the same time and would also give Netflix significant chips in the Oscar race in the, in the years that will follow. But in the end, The Irishman wrapped its its final shots in March of 2018 that the principal photographer and all the pickups that the bits that they needed were there and this meant that post-production could begin it is telling just how much post-production work was required on the Irishman that it was nearly 18 months before the film was complete now, by February 2019, with ILM still working on getting all these shots right, and in the end there were, what, 1,750 or so F, uh, VFX shots in the movie, put that against a Star Wars film, and it stacks not far from that. Also crucial on this one is around two and a half hours of the running time of The Irishman required visual effects work in. A, a gigantic undertaking, an expensive undertaking. And at one stage, Scorsese was suggesting this might be his last film. This was a very, very long haul movie, even after he'd done the bulk of the shooting of it.
But still, by February 2019, as I said, Netflix was confirming the film was going to be uh, released towards the end of 2019. And so the debate sprung up about, well, is it going to get a cinema release? Because a couple of things were happening here. Movie cha- movie cinema chains were, were not keen on Netflix. They saw Netflix as a threat to their business, that streaming was going to stop people going to the cinema. And so why should they hasten their own demise by playing Netflix films? Netflix, for its part, had a plan that it wanted to release the film in cinemas to give it a short run ahead of its its streaming release, um, which basically would see the... It's always the old traditional way of a movie was released in cinemas, but it was always said the money was made on video, and so the cinema release was treated as the trailer for that. Netflix was taking that to a further extent, really. It was trying to drive subscribers, and it knew if it put it in cinemas, it would get a much broader write-up, a much broader response from critics, get much more uh, discussion but also crucial for this it knew it had to put it in cinemas to qualify for the academy awards and netflix wanted an oscar the other person, of course, who wanted this in cinemas was Martin Scorsese, an absolute cinema purist. There'd already been discussion and pushback about what on earth is Scorsese doing, making a film with a streaming company. I'm very quaint days now as we look back on it. Um, did he really want to make films that could be made on mobile phones? In fact, he would explicitly say during the promotion of The Irishman, please don't watch this on your phone, but that notwithstanding. Cinemas were reluctant to play the film. Scorsese had been pushing for a theatrical window uh, up to 45 days at one stage. But they agreed uh, between them all that a 26-day theatrical window was going to be part and parcel of the release of The Irishman. But they couldn't get the vast majority of major cinema chains in the US and also in the UK to pick it up. So in the UK, Cineworld and View, for instance, ruled out showing the film because it's a streaming film. They're not giving it a full proper theatrical run and thus we are not going to support it. And they didn't. I think the chain that picked it up in the UK in the, in the end was a smaller one, Real. That's certainly where I saw saw it at a, at a small real cinema here in the West Midlands in the UK. It was a very uncomfortable chair as well. But the film was coming. I mean, there's no two ways about it. This was the only way in the end this film could get made. There were rumours springing up that the running time wasn't just three hours. It was edging towards four. Those rumours would turn out to be correct. The final running time of The Irishman would be 209 minutes. Um, so what, three and a half hours all in. And it was scheduled to get its its premiere at the New York Film Festival on September the 27th, 2019. And to call it eagerly awaited just does not do this justice at all. By this stage as well, it's worth noting that Netflix had spent a small fortune on the movie. In fact, a big fortune on the movie. That The budget is said to be, I mean, no one can quite agree, the cheapest most would concede the film cost is $160 million in the end. All that extra time had added more and more cash to the budget, given the tech required to de-age the actors in it. Some estimates have put it as high as quarter of a billion dollars to make this movie. But Scorsese was out in force promoting it and Netflix was spending big promoting it as well. This was its big chip in the Oscar race. And Scorsese at the press uh, press conference of the film was was playing up, watching it on a big screen. He said there's no doubt that seeing a film with an audience is really important. But also he addressed the fact that it was the only way to get this going. He says there's a problem. We have to make the film. We've run out of room. And he said in a sense there was no room for us to make this picture for many reasons. But having the backing of 
a company that says you will have no interference. You can make the picture as you want. The trade-off being it streams with theatrical distribution. Prior to that, I figure there's a chance that's a chance we take on this particular project. Now, it's worth noting that as we as I talk now in the summer of just edging into the summer of 2022, Netflix subscriber numbers are dropping, and a story at the Hollywood Reporter suggested that The Irishman is exactly the kind of film that Netflix won't be making going forward as it tries to regain its foothold. But at this moment in time, it was a crucial film for the streamer because also it was it was moth to light bulb moment that filmmakers realised if they had a commercially tricky film that required a big budget to make, Netflix was interested. I mean, Fincher signed up, David Fincher signed up with them. Um, big, big name stars, big name directors and, and acclaimed directors, Jane Campion, were signing up with Netflix because they'd let you make your film. They give you the budget to do it and you get final cut on it in some cases as well. The reviews that the film attracted when it came out were on at the top end. They were absolutely ecstatic. The film came, I mean, it topped lots of uh, best best film of the year lists or certainly made its appearance in lots of top 10 lists as well. There was a degree of pushback on it, but a, a kind of feeling that the story to a degree had been sold, uh, had been told before by Scorsese. They were going over old ground, but also there was a lot of joy in seeing Scorsese and his team on home territory here. And somewhat inevitably in the end, the, the film got 10 Oscar nominations for its trouble. Now, Netflix had invested hard to make sure it did. I, ordinarily, I should note, at this point in a story, I'd go through the box office returns for a film. Pretty much no point here. Barely scraped $10 million worldwide at the box office, but then... The, cinemas wouldn't show it and Netflix doesn't release box office figures as a rule anyway but what it was doing was putting 50 million dollars into the promotion of the film around its original release and that landed in cinemas well yeah I mean a little way after the New York Film Festival debut cinemas in November at the start of November 2019 and then the debut on the streaming service which is a big day for Netflix November the 27th once it was launched, another $40 million was set aside for the Oscar campaign as well. So in the end, $90 million to promote this film. How many Scorsese movies from the 90s could you make for that amount of money? All of them would be the answer. And uh, I mean, it got results. So Netflix boasted of 26 million. I mean, th this is beautiful, isn't it? Netflix's way of reporting box office is just like it's a maths exam. 26 million streams watched at least 70 percent of its running time in its first week. I've got no idea how to take that figure, but I'll pass that on. But it was certainly one of Netflix's highest profile films, if not its highest profile film in its uh, in that particular year. And it was attracting other people in. It was getting eyeballs to the service and it did get all of those Oscar nominations as well. The downside for Netflix, and it had uncut gems running at the same time as well, was it didn't actually win those Oscars. And I don't think it's much of a secret to suggest that Netflix was very, very keen to land a Best Picture Oscar, but he's kind of struggling to do so. That the 92nd Academy Awards in the end will give the Best Picture Prize to Parasite. Uh, uncut gems were shut out pretty much altogether. And in fact, a different uh, Netflix film, Marriage Story, was the one that was making the race for quite a while. But the Irishman were walking away pretty much empty-handed at the end of all of it uh, parasite winning the winning the prize and the film then just settled it would get a physical media release through the criterion collection about a year or so later but scorsese when he then started to fund his next movie an adaptation of killers of the flower moon starring now leonardo dicaprio 
and Robert De Niro, well, turned out even Netflix couldn't afford that one. The $200 million asking price for that has been footed for Apple. As it stands, The Irishman, in the end, was a film that took a long time to make. It was very much worth making. I enjoyed the film. Um, but it stands at a point in Netflix history that it's hard to see it revisiting again. And for a movie that had so many false starts, it did find the exact right moment and the exact right company to get it made. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. And that brings me to the halfway point of this latest episode of Film Story. So I'm going to quickly do my parish notices because I'm already overrunning. Um, if you like this podcast, three ways you can support it. I'm grateful for all stroke any of them. Uh, if, you, uh, if you want to financially support us, get the podcast early, find out the gossip of what we're up to behind the scenes, go to patreon.com slash Simon Brew. And thank you to everyone who supports us there. Uh, the funds that are attracted there are invested into materials for the podcast. And also I pay new and upcoming writers to write articles to the website and try and give people a break into that side of the industry. If you can subscribe to the podcast, that helps enormously. If you can ideally leave a hugely positive review, that's also just the kind of thing that helps independent podcasts like us bubble up and get noticed. I also want to give a quick plug to two live events and one new magazine. So I'm live in London here in the UK on the 23rd of June 2022. You can find ticket details there at filmstories.co.uk. You can also find early ticket details for my next show in Birmingham in the UK, which is July the 13th, 2022. And issue 34 of our print magazine, cunningly entitled Film Stories, that's just gone up for pre-order with the brilliant Doug Jones on the front cover. Can't tell you how chuffed we are to get a proper movie nerd interview with him. Uh, you can find that at store.filmstories.co.uk. But after a deep, serious Oscar epic, I'm going to go back to my immature side. Let's go back to 2008. I'm going to play you a trailer from a Kevin Smith movie and I'll come to the story the other side of this. <gasps> you don't have the rent? It's your month. Why are you always bending over backwards for that girl knowing she ain't giving up no love? We got a good thing going, man. Why complicate that with sex? What the? What happened to the water? They shut it off. Help me get this out of my hair. Just use the water out of the toilet. There's poo in there. The back part of the oh. toilet. I don't think we're going to keep a roof over our heads. These are the exact circumstances people find themselves in right before they start having sex for money. What? You got an idea? We could make a porno. Not the idea I was looking for. And that's a clip from 2008, Zach and Miri Make a Porno, directed by Kevin Smith. He also wrote the script as well, starring uh, Seth Rogen, Elizabeth Banks, Craig Robinson, Jason Mewes, Tracy Lords, Jeff Anderson, Katie Morg uh, uh, Morgan and Ricky May. 
And the, well, the tale of this one, well, on one hand, it goes to the mid 1990s. On the other, it goes to the mid 2000s. So I'm going to do that in reverse. In late 2005, Smith had a breakfast meeting with the now convicted rapist Harvey Weinstein, who had left the Miramax company where he'd made his name and had set up the Weinstein Company. Now, Smith and Weinstein had worked together for a while. The film Clerks 2 was a few weeks away from shooting at that point. And Weinstein was said to be quizzing Smith on what he wanted to do next. And so he told him that he had an idea for a film called Zack and Miri Make a Porno. But all he had was the title. Didn't matter. Weinstein snapped it up on the spot. And th this was going ahead. Um, now, this was months after the film The 40-Year-Old Virgin had become a big summer hit. And after a lull when the American Pie saga fizzled out on the big screen, at least, bawdy comedies were very much back in fashion. And here Smith had one with seemingly, to Weinstein's ears, the perfect title. Now, in truth, going back to the mid-1990s, Smith had been noodling uh, the idea of a comedy set in the adult film industry since around 1996. He'd had two competing ideas for that, but his career was taking off. He was doing things like Mallrats, Chasing Amy, uh, Dogma, and his slate had been consistently packed. Now, Smith did watch The 40-Year-Old Virgin, and at this point, he was taken by a supporting performance in the film. The, uh, the film is acknowledged to be Steve Carell's big screen breakthrough, but Seth Rogen was the one who absolutely cracked Kevin Smith up, and he wanted to work with Seth Rogen. And so he met up with Weinstein uh, a few days later. Now they were talking about the release strategy for Clerks 2, which was edging closer and closer to its unveiling. And Smith talks extensively about this in his book, My Boring Ass Life. And he told Weinstein that he wanted to meet this Seth Rogen bloke, that he'd watched 40-Year-Old Virgin, and that was the person he had roughly in mind to head up Zach and Miri. As it turned out, Weinstein was meeting him next over a film called Fanboys that would get made. And so, do you want to go along and meet him? Smith said yes. Rogan and Smith met up. Rogan told Smith that he was a fan. They swapped phone numbers and that was pretty much that, at least for the time being. Because for the following year, Clerks 2 pretty much took over Kevin Smith's life. That the release of the film, the interviews, the promo, the DVD release, it's a very, very busy time. But by the spring of 2006, he was writing the script for Zack and Miri Make a Porno properly. That he no longer just had a single idea and a single title. The screenplay was coming together. At this stage, it's worth noting, Seth Rogen's star was taking off. That there, As Smith was writing the film, posters of Rogen were going up all around for a film called Knocked Up. Now, I've covered Knocked Up before on this podcast, directed by Judd Apatow. And it was the film that turned Seth Rogen into a global comedy movie superstar. Still, in May 2007, Smith completed a draft and after tuning it a little bit for a week or two with his producer, uh, Scott Mosier, he sent it over to the Weinsteins. And around the same time, that same month, Smith got hold of Seth Rogen's email address and wrote to him because he got a script now. Could he possibly lure Seth Rogen to the film? And so he wrote an email to Rogen that talked about the meeting they'd had last year. Sure, you've forgotten about it all. And all of this is in Smith's book. Um, but I've written this film. Would you be interested? He knew that Seth Rogen was promoting Knocked Up, that he had Superbad coming out not long afterwards, that Pineapple Express was being made around the same time, so that he was busy. But also he pointed out that we were looking to shoot Zack and Miri Make a Porn at the start of 2008. So there's not actually a mad rush on it. Six, seven, eight months away at this stage. Press send on the email and just would wait for a reply. As it turned out, that reply would come within 
hours. And the, the reply from Rogan to Smith would say he's genuinely always been a fan. He told his agent when he moved to Hollywood, he wanted to be in a Kevin Smith movie. And this looked like it was going somewhere. Rogan then was committed to doing his uh, promotional duties, going around the world to promote Knocked Up. It turned into the big surprise hit of the summer. And so Smith was just like, well, is he still going to star in this film? But unbeknownst to him, Rogan had actually read the script that Smith had sent him whilst he was travelling around the world on his press tour. And in July 2007, we knocked up release and in the world, he went round to Kevin Smith's house uh, in L.A. and they talked about the project. And there was the feeling that, again, this is slowly moving forward. But by this stage, Smith was planning to shoot the film a, a little bit earlier in November 2007. They were looking to bring it forward a little bit. There was the imminent threat of a Writers Guild of America strike as well. So lots of film productions were trying to get going as quickly as possible to offset that. But just as it looked like this might happen, it was Seth Rogen's agents who put on the brakes because Knocked Up was uh, Knocked Up was out. Superbad was about to land. Pineapple Express was in post-production. And Rogen at this stage had just landed the gig of writing and starring in Green Hornet for Sony. His big blockbuster breakthrough that would be. There was a lot of work on and they wanted to buy Seth Rogen some space. And so Zach Amiri was a no-go for 2007. Now, Smith knew and he was on to a good thing. And so he offered to wait it out. And he said, don't worry if you need to change the film, if you need to duck out, you just tell me. But Rogen was still very much in. He just wanted the time. He appreciated Smith being willing to delay the movie so he could start in it. He also wanted to send over an idea or two on the script. Now, summer turned to autumn and Smith was then working on his horror film Red state as well. He's going through a production, uh, a productive period. He'd been making television shows too. And so he could look elsewhere for various bits of the casting as it looked like this project might be coming together. Now, if he had Seth Rogen in mind for Zach, which he clearly did, he had Rosario Dawson, who'd worked with him before, in line for the role of Miri. But Smith learned that she had landed a role in a big film as well. She was going to star in the film Eagle Eye, which was co-starring Shia LaBeouf, produced by Steven Spielberg. And the schedule of that was blatantly going to overlap. And so she was out of the film. And so with Weinstein still willing to pay for the movie and effectively a, a bit of a green light in place, what he didn't have was any lead actors. He'd got a film called Zack and Miri. He didn't have a Zack. He didn't have a Miri. And so they still needed to get moving. They still wanted to get their get this shot in the window that they had. They drew up a shortlist for the female lead, came up with top five choices of whom Elizabeth Banks was in there. Now, her agent had actually inquired about the film. So the, the interest was two way there. There was an Internet rumour that suggested Jason Bateman was in line for the role of Zack at one point, which was blatantly untrue. And Smith was worried that that might put Seth Rogen off if he'd read it. He needn't have worried because in September 2007, things took a crucial jump forward where Rogan and Smith met up. Rogan gave him a single note, really, a single idea on the script. Smith then just crossed his fingers at that stage and hoped Zach and Miri hadn't fallen behind Green Hornet in the queue. But he hadn't because the strike had actually worked in their favour because the one thing they didn't want to do was launch a big blockbuster film production at a point where there was a threat of a writer's strike. So they decided to put Green Hornet back a little bit and that gave Seth Rogen a window to shoot Zack and Miri make a porno after all. It wasn't going to shoot until early 2008 now. It would move to Pittsburgh, not the original location Smith had envisaged, but a little bit of rewrite work took care of that. Rogen was in. 
Elizabeth Banks, he talked to, he talked about co-starring with her and Smith and Rogan both agreed she would be perfect. And so with the two leads there, the offers went in. Banks met up uh, with Smith and they, they hit it off and it all worked together. The Weinstein signed off. And by mid-November 2007, the deals were in place for the movie. Pre-production could begin that month and the shoot was scheduled to start in, in January of 2008. Rehearsals then came together starting on January the 8th in the Pittsburgh area. Smith talked uh, around the time about how he used to do weeks of rehearsals, but over time that had whittled down a little bit. They managed to start shooting the same film in and around the same week. But this was a, a rarity, really, because Smith had usually been quite vocal during the production of his films. He blogged during the production of his films, a very vocal filmmaker on the Internet. But in the case of Zach and Miri, he decided to keep a bit more shtum on it. He deliberately decided he wanted to go about this in a slightly different way. And he'd also, uh, in terms of the visual style of the film, had his head turned really by working in television, in particular the TV show Reaper, of which he worked on the opening episode of, and the production values of Reaper. And as he told Collider, he said, by the time we go to Zach and Miri, we were ready. It was just like, all right, now it's time to compete at that normal level. Everyone competes at in terms of making a visually interesting movie. And he says, it took me 15, 14, 13 years to figure out. But I'm like, maybe a movie can look as good as it sounds. And his confidence in the visuals of the shooting of his films was up. Whereas if you go back to some of his earlier films, he's conceded this as well. It's a lot more straightforward and a lot more basic. I think the turning point for me was around Dogma and Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back that you can see him getting a bit more dramatic with the way that he framed his shots. And he was continuing to build on that. Now, filming would wrap in the early hours of March the 12th, 2008 on the film. And Smith, as always, was editing as he went along. That's his modus operandi. But there was a quiet confidence growing around the movie. It had cost, what, $20, $24 million to make. So that's quite expensive if compared to Smith's other films. But that people had their eye on the box office returns of films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin that are completely broken out. Still, ahead of the release, which there was that little bit of confidence towards, there are a couple of fights to have. Um, in particular, and perhaps unsurprisingly, with the Motion Picture Association of America, the MPAA, the ratings board in the US, that gave films, NC-17s, R's, PG-13s, that would allow them to be shown in American cinemas. And so the MPAA just doesn't like Nookie. That's pretty well known. It gave the film an NC-17 rating for its sexual content, and the commercial ramification of that was would be dramatic. NC-17 rated films in America where you can't take kids in because kids desperately want to see a film called Zack and Miri make a porno were seen as box office poison. The major cinema chains would refuse to show the movies in days of old. The big video chains would not take the film either. And so th there was a problem. But they appealed the rating in this case. And this process went on for a good month or two. And eventually they were successful that in August of 2008, uh, America's, Americans were allowed to look at a bit of nook after all, when it got an R rating without the filmmakers having to make a single cut to the movie to get it. But the problems still weren't sorted because then there was how do you promote the film? Now, Smith uh, has a loyal band of followers online, of course, and the first trailer came out and that went down well. But the posters, that was more problematic. For this to be a big hit, it had to go beyond Kevin Smith's traditional audience. And that really was what this was in part a play towards. Now, there was a poster put together that featured Seth Rogen and Elizabeth Banks. How am I going to describe this? Let's just say they were 
were examining the stitches of each other's lower garments of clothing and that particular poster didn't go down very well. It got an awful lot of pushback, was banned from many places in America. And the marketing department tried to turn this to its advantage by substituting that photo with a stick drawing of Seth Rogen and Elizabeth Banks and a camera with a line uh, above it that said, Seth Rogen and Elizabeth Banks made a movie so titillating, we can only show you this drawing, Zach and Miri make a porno. Now, even the stick figures would prove to be offensive to some, as it would turn out. Several cities rejected a bus shelter advert in the US that had the word porno in it. Not allowed to have that. Uh, 15 different newspapers, many TV stations and cable channels. Fox Sports is one of them. Uh, didn't carry ads for the film and refused to do so after complaints from their viewers. And as much as they were bubbling the conversation up here and trying to make good of it, the promotional damage was being done here. Now, Kevin Smith would push back heavily against it. I mean, as he would say on an episode of his own podcast, The Smodcast, he said, it's not like we're running commercials during Hannah Montana. It's an R-rated movie. If you're going to come out against this one, come out against every R-rated movie that has a poster in public, he argued. And he said, uh, use your heads. He said his producer, Scott Mosier, summed the situation up pretty well when he said, at a certain point, we have to stop treating everybody like they're, I can't read that, cl clucking, clucking stupid. Still, the promotional campaign went on. There was one more hiccup in the midst of it all, and that's that a distribution deal fairly late in the day between the Weinstein Company and MGM fell apart. Now, this was about a month or so before it affected seven films that the Weinstein Company was making, and that meant Zach and Miri made porno was going to be direct, uh, released at, into cinemas and distributed directly by the Weinstein Company when its first films that it did so with and that it didn't have the clout of MGM behind it. Now, there was still in Smith's mind the commitment that the Weinstein Company would spend to promote this around £30 million was promised. That's what Weinstein would argue was spent promoting the movie. But this release date was in October the 31st, 2008, after a premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival at the start of September 2008. And there was a feeling, could this do 50, 60 million dollars? Could this break Kevin Smith's films through to the mainstream? That even though the conservative networks were immensely troubled by the film and by its title, there's no question that its profile was growing. And Smith himself would admit, and he's talked about this in retrospect as well, that he was he was getting a little bit more confident of this. They they felt this one might work, and that it just needed the release to go well, and they were away. The release didn't go well. Now, inevitably, when this went before critics, there was quite a lot of pushback that it was noted that the R rating was getting a significant workout. But also there was some degree of surprise. I'm not sure that's it should be a surprise that the film was actually quite innately sweet in the midst of it all. Now, I'm a fan of Zack and Miri make a porno. I think it's a funny film. I think it's a crude film, but I do think it's it's a human and sweet one as well. And so the reviews actually weren't bad. I mean, they weren't off the chart, but in, in the scale of bawdy American comedies at the time, they were coming in pretty good and there was no sign from reading them that there was big trouble ahead. Now, Smith has told a story about getting the box office updates for that weekend of October the 31st, 2008. And they needed really to get 10 million a day to get a 30 million dollar opening weekend over the Friday, Saturday, Sunday of the weekend. 
And the game was up very, very quickly. He was getting the call in that was getting three, four million. It was falling a long way short of what they'd hoped for and realistically what they'd expected as well. Now, the opening weekend on paper doesn't look particularly shabby. Ten million dollars open in second place. It was beaten by High School Musical 3 senior year in its second week. Uh, Saw 5 was around the charts on its second week as well. Clint Eastwood's Changeling was on its second week. That was at number four. The new, re- the other new release that, that week was a horror film called The Haunting of Molly Hartley that I think has pretty much fallen into obscurity. And films such as Beverly Hills Chihuahua, The Secret Life of Bees, Max Payne, Eagle Eye was there, Pride and Glory... I mean, not intense competition, really. And Zach and Miri, I mean, there was no way around it. When the second weekend results came through, it had fallen and it dropped again. And in fact, Role Models, an absolutely terrific, I think, crude Hollywood comedy came out the following week. And that didn't help either. But this one stung. And by the time Zach and Miri had found its way out of cinemas, it had done 31 million in the US. So it had done not a million miles shy of what Kevin Smith films had been doing already. It hadn't found the new audience, really. Another 11 million dollars overseas, a worldwide take of 42 million dollars. It wasn't leaving red ink everywhere, but it was clearly below what had been hoped for and expected. And in fact, as Kevin Smith would tell the Huffington Post, I I was depressed. He said, I wanted that movie to do so much better. He said, I'm sitting there thinking, that's it. That's it. I'm gone. I'm out. The movie didn't do well and I killed Seth Rogen's career. He said, this dude was on a roll until he got in with the likes of me. I'm a career killer. Judd Apatow's going to be and not happy and the whole internet's going to be really struggling to read this not happy and he said the only reason they like me anymore is because I was involved with Seth and now I uh, clucking ruin that and Smith would take this one hard I mean he would stop working for a couple of months in the aftermath of its box office disappointment he stopped blogging for nearly six months really and in fact he, he didn't ever really blog with the same level of intensity afterwards either it would also mark the start of the long relationship working relationship between Smith and Harvey Weinstein that the commercial failure of the film had hit Weinstein but also Smith felt the allegation was that he felt he'd been promised things promotionally and commitments that hadn't been hit Weinstein suggested they did but they were going their separate ways Now, what eventually happened is Smith pulled himself back up and for his next gig, he took uh, a left field choice. He took a studio project. For the first time, he was directing a film with a movie star, with a studio and from someone else's script. That was originally called A Couple of Dicks. It would eventually be called Cop Out and he'd make that film with Bruce Willis and Tracy Morgan. And that would not be a happy experience. It would be fair to say he had far more fun shooting Zack and Miri make a porno than he did Cop Out. And I asked Kevin Smith about it. About the making of Cop Out and why he chose that. And he says it, it just came along at the right time after Zach and Miri kind of fizzled out at 31 million or whatever it was in the States. He said it did do insane business for a Kevin Smith movie, it just didn't climb the Apatoian heights that everyone was hoping for. And there was the rub, really. Judd, Judd Apatow's movies as director and producer had changed the level of expectation for what a film such as Zach and Miri make a porno could and should have done. And when it didn't match it, this film that comes 
comfortably in the end broke even, continues to be watched, uh, would be ranked as a disappointment. Whether it was or wasn't, it's up to you really. Do you like the film? Does it make you laugh? I do. I quite like it. Smith, he wouldn't really go near anything quite like that again. His career's gone off in, in a different direction. I think he would happily concede that as well. He would at one stage retire from filmmaking. He would then rebuild. And in fact, he would move on to the horror film Red State, which I covered in a previous episode of the podcast. And what a dramatic about turn that would be. Which brings me to the end of this latest episode of Film Stories. And as always, thank you for listening and thank you for your time. If I've not bored you completely, you can get more from me on Twitter at Simon Brew. You can get more from the entire Film Stories project at Film Stories Pod. If you go to store.filmstories.co.uk, you can find all of our magazines. Uh, there are lots of them now. Loads of back issues as well. You can find our sneakers Blu-ray for those of you in the UK with special extras that we've put together. If you go to filmstories.co.uk, that's updated every weekday with movie news, re reviews, features and all sorts of nerdy stuff in there as well we're at facebook.com slash film stories online youtube.com slash film stories um, and i think that's pretty much it all that's left for me to say is you all look after yourselves and you all take care i'm going to be back soon with another bunch of film stories until then you all look after yourself bye bye